Hello, my name's Chris. Hi, I'm Chris. And we love movies. Yeah, we both love movies, don't we? Uh, usually not the same movies, though. Well, no. I mean, <laughs> I try and find a film that I like that you like when I invite you over, but um, has it ever happened? Um, maybe. I can't think of it. There have been ones I didn't hate. You kind of liked some of them. Or some bits of them. So, yeah, recently we've watched one film that I've always really liked in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, That is Brian De Palma's 1987 film, The Untouchable. And we we get together most weekends and we watch a movie or two. Yeah. It's a fun experience, even if we don't enjoy the movie. I mean, we watched a film on Friday that we both really liked, which was uh, Get Out. Yes, Get Out. So, yeah. So then the next night I thought we'll watch something that I suggest. And I'm very into films from the, um, well, any, any films really, but Hollywood films up to, up to a certain point I find very satisfying. Um, the certain point being like the 90s. I have no business reviewing movies. I'm just opinionated and loud. Which is, which is, yeah, which is good. Which is good. You was way a good person to watch films. Yeah. Although you do kind of ruin them <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> you are probably better situated to critique a film than I am. Well, but you're also just much more willing to go along with the film. Yeah, and I obviously, I mean, let's talk about the film. <laughs> okay. So, um, The Untouchables. The Untouchables. Now, I, this film is set in 1930 during Prohibition, and that's kind of the main theme is mm-hmm. the prohibition is a thing in America and um, Al Capone is not a very nice person I mean it's based on real this is based on real yeah. people real stuff although a lot of it is I was reading up about it actually that yeah. Capone and uh, Elliot Ness never actually met oh of course not but they do in the movie in two scenes mm-hmm. um, actually I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to read the blurb on the back of the DVD. It's a bit more coherent than I am. <laughs> this classic confrontation between good and evil stars Kevin Costner as federal agent Elliot Ness, Robert De Niro as gangland kingpin Al Capone, and Sean Connery as Malone, the cop who teaches Ness how to beat the mob. Shoot fast and shoot first. <laughs> the critics and public agree. Brian De Palma's The Untouchables is a must-see masterpiece. A glorious, fierce, larger-than-life depiction of the mob warlord who ruled Prohibition-era Chicago and the law enforcer who vowed to bring him down. Yeah, okay. I mean, I guess that's a, mm, a fair, if generous, assessment I mean, of the it's, movie. It's, it's, it's on the back of the DVD, so right. it's not going to say it's, it's shit. Yeah. It's, like, it's not going to say it doesn't work. Um, but, I mean... Uh, so what actually happens... So Al Capone is. I mean, we we gang, start a, with um, with Kevin Costner's character Ness. Do it. You know, I've seen this film sometimes. I can't remember <laughs> the order of the scenes. Yeah, we we start with Ness. He's at home. Yeah. Oh no 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 no! The first scene is in that bar, right? We're in a bar, and some barman is like, "I'm not going to buy beer from one of Capone's guys." No, the first scene is Al Capone. 
where he says, I don't mind if people don't want to buy, if they don't want to buy from me, then that's, that's fine. And then uh, in the next scene is in the bar, yeah. where you say that actually he does mind. Right. He does mind. That's setting up the irony. Yes. Yeah, so first scene, Al Capone saying, no, it's fine, you don't have to buy booze for me. Second scene is Al Capone's guy blowing up a bar with a kid in it because the barman doesn't want to buy beer. So that sort of... That sets up the film. From then, we join Ness, Kevin Costner's character, and uh, he's at home getting ready for the day, and he's holding a newspaper in a very awkward way so that they can get a shot of the headline. Um, Which is, what was the headline? Something about the bar blowing up. Yeah, I remember that, I remember that. And his wife is cutting up extraordinarily dry carrots for oh, his lunch. Carrots, which we later see him eating. Yes, those carrots were from the fourth or fifth take. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not looking to it, so... Yeah. I'm not sure what, what Brian De Palma's retake background is. I but. mean, maybe she cut them the night before and just left them for, <laughs> so she didn't have to do it in the morning. They very nice carrots in those days, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Anyway. So then Ness's character goes to work at the police pre- precinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he he meets these... He first has, like, a little press conference thing, very brief, and we start to get the impression that Kevin Costner can't emote. Well, that's not something that ever occurred to me until I watched it with you. I mean, his his delivery during the press conference is very monotone, and maybe you could make the argument that that is a purposeful disaffectation, but I think that argument wouldn't hold up in the face of the rest of the film. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. What happens next? Um, I can't remember actually. What uh, the he, next scene was. He goes back to meet the the police that are going to be on his team, the big room full of cadets in uniform, and then they go out that evening and they are going to do a raid. Oh yeah. They've got some hot tip about Canadian whiskey Canadian coming in. Whiskey, yeah. It's in a particular warehouse. There's a maple leaf on the box, so they show up in like a bulldozer thing that's been weaponized. Wearing their uniforms with guns. Yep. Uh, And they drive this bulldozer thing into the warehouse and all the cops rush in uh, and this (laughs) hero cop (laughs) runs in and he's got one press guy there that he happens to like that has followed them for inexplicable reasons. Yeah. He's quite annoying, that guy. Yeah, he's a non-entity in the film. I don't know why he's there. Um, Other than to make, like, the headline diegetic. So, yeah, you know, he sets up the press guy. He's like, get ready to take your shot. And he busts open a box that's supposed to be full of whiskey, and it's full of... puts his hand in, full of hay. Yeah. What's it going to come out? He pulls out a parasol. Yeah. And at first, I didn't realize it was a parasol, because it was solid green. It was very, very... A sturdy looking parasol. Yeah, I, it, very strange. I thought it was like some vegetable I'd never seen, like a mutant cucumber. And you realize it's a parasol when he when he opens it, opens it, yeah. it up, and then cue the photographer, the annoying press guy, takes a photo of him holding it up, which is um, is then was it what? There's a next scene, a shot of the newspaper, yeah. him on the in that pose on the front of the paper, whatever. I can't remember what the headline said. Yeah, something hero cop makes big bust and it's supposed to be I think something like that and he's got the umbrella so you know it's mocking him he's back in the precinct the next day all the cops are laughing at him he feels miserable oh I'm such a failure and it's sort of the failure of this raid sets up the fact that the police are in league with Al Capone they're on the payroll which I must confess I wasn't I didn't get straight away 
even though I've seen this film about four <laughs> times. So he's a shitty day There's at work. The, the, the Irish cop. The what? Not Sean Connery, the other one. The, 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 the great chief. Hunter. The chief. Was he yeah. the chief? Yeah. Really? The one he has a fight with. Like, yeah. yeah. Head of chief of the police, yeah. whatever, head of the precinct, I don't know. Whatever the fuck. Uh, Kevin Costner's character, bad day. Is this when he goes to the bridge? Yeah, he leaves so work. He, he, he's, he's got this note from his wife that we've seen earlier in the film, I forgot what it says, I'm proud of you or something. Yeah. Like, I'm proud of you. Yeah, his, his wife made his lunch with those dry-ass carrots, left him a note saying, I'm proud of you. He pulls it out during the raid, so it's supposed to like build his spirits, mm-hmm. I guess. And then, you know... It's supposed to create an emotional arc for him, which would work if he had any emotions. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and then, you know, he's walking along the street. He happens to be on some footbridge. Uh, he crumples up the note and he throws it off the bridge into the water. And Sean Connery, playing a beat cop, an Irish beat cop, which I did not get at first because he he's Scottish can, yeah he's very Scottish and then, but then there's like a, a, tw- a sudden a sudden Irish twang in like two of his deliveries and um, the film I mean you are better equipped to identify an Irish twang than I am but I did not detect any hint of Irish well so yeah you know beat cop don't throw your trash in the river or whatever I'm a good cop because I'm very simple and I just walk my beat and I do my job etc uh, and that's sort of the end of the scene. There's but a little but bit he of stays in his mind, and somehow, somehow he's he knows where he lives. Yeah, and, I know. He, and like <laughs> stalked him to find, come to his significant to his breach of privacy. His very nice apartment, by the way. He's yeah, very, for a beat cop, he's got a nice place. Maybe, maybe, maybe he was like five rooms at least. Maybe he narrated it. Maybe. Ness is talking to Sean Connery's character, whose name I, I do not remember. At Malone. All. Malone. Mm-hmm. And Malone is like, no, I don't want to do it. Okay, you've convinced me. And then he kind of almost takes over. Not almost, but <laughs> entirely. <laughs> he, he's, uh, he very quickly assumes this sort of experienced mentor role hmm. on the special tax- task force to stop the movement of alcohol by Al Capone's group in Chicago. And Malone says, how do you get a clean cop? You get one that's not a cop. <laughs> you recruit a recruit, I guess. Uh, for some reason that works. Yeah, like... Um, an accountant, for instance. Yep, yep, there's the accountant. Yeah, so there's two more characters in this main group, and we're sort of introduced to them at this point in the film. I can't remember who comes first, and it doesn't matter, because not only... Can, can comes first. Does he? Okay. And then they say, no, no, the other guy comes first. Because they go looking for... They go to, to find the, these... Yeah, the shooting, they, range. the shooting range. Yeah. And they said, Who's the, who the best two, the best two shots? Yeah. And he gives this one guy who's a bit, bit gauche. Yeah, he's... Useless. And they said, right... He's got a stutter for some reason. And he's ginger, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then um, after they get rid of him, Sean Connery makes a joke saying, oh, there's the next chief of police. <laughs> yeah. You know, the implication being he has no internal yeah. thought process, so he's going to be the boss someday. Which, you know, fair criticism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the second guy, he works out. He's played by a famous actor. Andy Garcia. Yeah. Who is a really great actor, right? 
I've seen him in a bunch of things, and I, I don't think I've ever been like, oh, he, he's not trying very hard. I've forgotten the name of his character. His, char- his, char- his, his character has two names, really. Yeah. Isn't he called John or something? Yeah, his, his uh, name is, like, John Stone or something. Oh, it was Stone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. something really generic and, like purposefully non-ethnic this, uh-huh. keep in mind that like this was an error an era in which like the irish had just been incorporated into the umbrella of whiteness but italians had not they faithfully reproduce some of the prejudices of the day uh so john stone authentic yeah course, obviously. john stone they talk to him and they're like what's your real name and he says something very italian that i cannot remember um, and uh, Sean Connery's character calls him a slur for Italian people. <laughs> and Sean Connery's character kind of goads him into, into fighting him a little bit. And when John Stone pulls a gun on him, Sean, Con- Sean Connery's character is like, oh, I like him. You're on the team. It's a very classic example of like brutish masculinity for these sorts of things. Like it's... It's not a way any real person would interact with another real person, least of all at a shooting range. Especially when they've got, you know, 40 year, they're 40 years younger than you and about the same size. You don't typically go people into fights, but, you know, it's characterization, I guess. And so uh, the next guy is the accountant. And they're in the office saying, right, we want one, one more guy. And the accountant is there, so they just take him. Yep. That's pretty much how they choose him. Basically. He was there. Yeah. They're like, you got a badge? Great. Here's a gun. And uh, kind of surprisingly, he's up for it. Yeah. I've known a few few accountants in my day. Um, One is a drag queen, so we're just going to put him aside for the moment. (laughs) But the others were fucking nerds. So maybe that's why. Maybe he's fed up with being a nerd and wanting a bit of action. Maybe. Maybe that's why he secretly joined the police to be. As an, he was an accountant. He wanted to kind of. This is what he was waiting for. Yeah, but he he didn't join the police. He's working with the IRS. He's from the same place that Ines is from. Yeah, but maybe. Oh, so he like accepted the field assignment yeah. because he wanted to yeah. get out. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll accept maybe. that. That's viable characterization. You kind of see that in his characterization, like that he's really actually having fun. Yeah. Until, you know, yeah. the left. We'll come to that later. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, so the elevator, as, as they call it. Mm. Yeah. They go to the post office? Yes. Yeah. As soon as they recruit the accountant, they're like, here's a gun. Let's go to the post office. Not to mail a letter. No, nor to pick something up. No. But to... To do a raid. Yeah. Sean Car- Malone says, uh, everybody knows where the liquor is. It's just a matter of... Taking it, or something like that. Taking it and not getting caught by Capone or something. Yeah. Not getting Capone's nerves or something. Yeah. Post office. And and Malone is very much in charge at this point. Yes. He's leading the group. He's mentoring Ness's bullshit. You know, recruited the accountant and the cadet. Post office. They barge in with guns, held out high. Everybody in there is like, oh shit, something's going down. If you did that today, yeah, basically the same reaction. Oh shit, something's going down. Slightly different context. Uh, And they sort of march straight to the the back hallway 
and they reach a locked door, and Malone's like, hand me the axe. And they chop through the door, and they find a big-ass warehouse full of booze and, like, 40 people working in there. I guess Malone has told us that it's an open secret. Everybody knows it. It's just a matter of doing something about it. A warehouse with 40 people actively working in it? That's a lot. No? I mean, warehouses... I, I couldn't even imagine a warehouse would be full of, full of people anyway. Working. Yeah, but, like, in a post office. Well, I don't know. I've never been in a post office warehouse, so I, 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 oh, I, yeah. I don't know. I kind of hate there would be lots of people there sorting out. It depends how much mail there is. <laughs> Let's face it. There's lots of mail, which there yeah. usually is. Yeah. They should have lots of people there. Yeah. I mean, I was surprised. I suppose I don't really know why I was surprised, right? Like, it's set up properly, and it makes sense in the context of the film. I was just surprised that, like, with, you know, 40 people in there on a shift, you'd think somebody would have said something to, like, the federal government who runs that post office. Obviously not in this case. Yeah, not in this case. Everybody's too afraid of Capone, I guess. So then, uh, yeah, they do this raid, they arrest everybody, uh, and it's their first big bust, bust, Mm -hmm. rather, and um, they get in the paper, they have some celebratory dinner with cigars, in some hole-in-the-wall restaurant and the, the annoying press guy shows up out of the blue. I've, already, I, I, I've totally forgotten that scene. Yeah. I, I don't have any memory of that yeah. scene. So. It's this, like, empty restaurant except for, like, them at one table and, like, a grandma behind the counter. Uh, and the annoying press guy comes through the front door with his camera held high and they all, like, spin around and pull their gun on him. And he's like, wait, wait, let me get a picture. And they do it for some reason. I must have left the room at this point. You might have, yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, um, anyway, that's yeah. not an important scene, I don't think. No, I mean... It's kind of inconsequential. Yeah, it, I think in the context of the film, it's just there to solidify that, like, the, this is a strong group. Yeah. They've succeeded at something, so they're going to stick it out. Um, now, at what point does the, the scene with Al Capone around the dinner table... With the... Right now, I think. I think it's now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they. one of the things that I did not love about this movie was that it likes to set things up, and rather than come back to them later, it just comes back to them immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, the next scene is very much the conclusion for this whole raid, happy dinner, sad dinner. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you saw him with the... The baseball bat, you were, you were like, he's going to clobber someone yep. at the dinner table. Yeah. And I just looked at you think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's Capone and company. They're having some fancy black tie dinner <clears throat> at some huge ass table in the middle of like a fucking air hanger of a palace, right? With like 10 butlers around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're all joking. Looks like they're on the, din- the uh, dessert course. You didn't look. I was I wasn't looking at the food, but I was looking at the the guys talking around the table, mm-hmm. thinking which one does he call that? Because what is it that one of them says that sets him off? And that no 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 it isn't really. It's the guy who was running the warehouse in the post office. He's the one that gets clobbered. Do you know what? I never noticed that. Yeah, I only realized it because during the raid on the post office, 
he poorly dubbed goes up to Malone and is like, what are you doing? And I, you know, it was bizarre in the moment. I'd missed that. What we should also have mentioned earlier is that is the guy in the white suit. Yes. Who who is the guy who leaves the bomb in the bar at the beginning. Yes. He kind of appears intermittently throughout during the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's like the enforcer. He does the dirty work. Um, He'll play a much bigger part later on in the film. Yeah. So, Capone and guys at dinner, joking around. Uh, Capone does some weird thing about baseball, and he grabs a baseball bat, and he's sort of walking around the table with the baseball bat, and he's talking something, giving a speech, and then he stops behind the guy who was running the warehouse. The guy said something, didn't he? But it wasn't kind of... Yeah. But then, and then the, the, the shot is the close-up of Al Capone's face, Robert De Niro's face. Yeah. And you see the, the, his face change to, like, I'm going to... Yeah. I'm going to smash him. Yeah, there's... And you're just waiting for that, that look. Yeah. I think De Niro, great actor, because you can actually see the, the change of internal state from I'm having a good time with dinner and I'm giving, like, a boisterous speech uh-huh. to it's time to murder somebody. Yeah. And murder somebody he does. He beats this man to death with a baseball bat. And he only, I think he only used two, two swipes. Yeah, he sort of does one big one and then he does another. And, you know, that's it, that's basically. It. And then it just cuts to this zooming out shot vertical. Mm-hmm. And you see the blood pooling on the table. And it's like I'm spattered all across the table and on the other. Yeah. Because it's kind of... That's gross. Yeah. So yeah. What scene was after that? Is this where they go to Chicago? Not Chicago, Canada. Canada. <laughs> or almost get to Canada. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think so, yeah. Uh, or maybe there's like some setup scene where they're like, we know about... Yeah, they have to get on the plane. Oh, the plane. Oh, so f- before the plane, remember what happens? The family. Oh, Ness's family. Yeah. The man in the white suit. Right. So, yeah, Ness comes home at the end of the day. It's his daughter's birthday. Yeah. yeah. And he's got a little present for her. And he walks up the road where his house is. And he sees this car parked on the opposite side to his house. Mm-hmm. The man in the white suit. Man in the there. white suit. Uh, and what is... I can't remember what exactly what he says. Like, great, great to be married. Lovely family. Hope nothing happens to him. Something and then, like that. yeah, Ness kind of says, mm, this is a bit weird. And then he says something else that kind of... Really goading, and then that's when that's something not right. Sort of spins around, he, he pulls out his gun, he starts to chase after the, the man in the white suit, but the man in white suit drives off too quick. Yeah. So then he immediately spins around and he goes in the house. Goes to the house, throws his daughter's present <laughs> <laughs> in the garden before he goes in. Yeah. And he's saying, what? Where's the baby? Where's the baby? Where's the baby? Which we, which is well, then later on is a bit weird because his wife's, his wife's pregnant, heavily pregnant apparently. So he's he runs, he runs in and screams, "Where's the baby?" Yeah, and that's of course that's what he always calls his daughter to his wife. I guess, he's never, but we, I mean, he's never said it in the film. Before, right, so. it's very weird. He runs upstairs. He finds he looks at his daughter's bed and she's not in bed. And there's like a musical sting. And, and then the camera cuts 
to the right and then she just sat there. At her yeah, head. she's fucking drawing. Yeah. And his wife, uh, just to add, is, is a very thankless character in, in the oh, story. Yeah. She doesn't even... She gets billed in the credits as Nessie's wife. She yeah. doesn't even have a name. She's not a character. She's a prop. Yeah. It's, it's shitty. It's a shitty role. Um, especially shitty because you have to pretend to love <laughs> this fucker who clearly <laughs> cannot love. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so he's yeah he's holding his daughter with his gun drawn. Well, by the yeah, way, yeah, yeah, very strange. <laughs> yeah, the gun is very much in short, but that I mean that must have been on purpose. That everything you see on screen. In theory, is there deliberately? Yeah. Where do Where do you think the director would have chosen for him to keep the gun in his hand? Mm. Maybe to emphasize the urgency. He was in such a rush that he's completely outside his body. He just needs to hold his daughter. Yeah, he can't I mean, put his there's gun away. A similar. There's kind of a similar scene later on in the film. That's similar, but kind of the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Involving a baby in a carriage. Yeah. But we'll come to that. Yes. This is a long-ass movie. <laughs> it's a, a minute less than two hours. Ah, uh, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, after that, uh, he puts his family away somewhere. We don't know. Yeah, I can't remember. They've fled town. Yeah. Not in Chicago, somewhere. Yeah. He gets on a plane to the... Canadian border, which is um, just this beautiful pastoral scene. There's a the, 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 there's a shot of the plane, and like you see him sat in the in the window of the plane, and it pans out, and you see who's actually in a plane. Yeah, and then you see the propellers going. I thought we're we gonna see he's actually in a flying plane, but no, we don't get to see no. that. And I was kind of because it was like a twenty foot set, yeah. probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're in Canada. Beautiful pastoral scene, except there's this weird bridge that crosses a river that happens to coincide with the border, and there's one strange little cabin just sitting there. Yeah. Near the unguarded border. Yeah, totally unguarded border between the U.S. and Canada. Apparently far enough from Chicago that they had to fly there, but not so far that Al Capone's men can't drive there. Well, we're assuming they didn't fly. I mean, they're in cars. Well, maybe they hired them? Maybe. They're all Capone's men. Yeah, I guess. But, yeah. Nothing is explained no, as far as it, that. It's not, it's not set up. We just have to decide. Yeah. So the Dream Team is there at the border. They're planning... You know, They know about some shipment coming down from the Canadian side of Canadian whiskey... And uh, Capone's men are going to stop at the border, sign for it, because this is a legitimate business, apparently, and take the whiskey back to Chicago. And this dream team, Ness's team, Malone's team, honestly, they know about it, and they're going to interrupt it. With the help of the Canadian Mounties. The Mounties are uh, kind of a non-entity. Well... There's only one with a face. You kind of get the impression that the Mounties are just 
glad to be given something to do. Yeah. That's Use- why they kind of come in a bit early. So. Yeah. Useful <laughs> idiots. Yeah. So, you know, they're planning this this bust and the Mounties screw it up because they show up too early. They're supposed to, like, flank Capone's men from the back. Uh, but they're, like, riding down the mountain shooting. Uh, and so the Dream Team has to run out of the cabin all at once and cut off Capone's men from the front. And uh, it doesn't go super well. No. Uh, there's a shootout. There's screeching tires, cars trying to maneuver on this weird-ass bridge. The accountant manages to kill, like, six people. Uh, and uh, Stone, the, the <coughs> sharpshooter from Sharpshooter Cadet, he kills probably a dozen people. I wasn't, I wasn't counting, actually. I'm sort of guessing. Okay. I mean... Stone is a good shot, but he he gets shot at some point, and he sort of rolls down oh, yeah. a hill. So the accountant has to run up the hill and take over. And yeah, he gets a few. He gets a few people. Yeah, weird shootout, a lot of blood. Um, but they capture some guy. Um, yeah, this is after. This is in the in the. Was this in the cabin? So there's another guy in the cabin. That they kind of one of them has like a, a face off with, and then yeah. this guy gets shot. Yeah, there's and, one uh, guy who looks a lot like it looks De Niro. like he looks like Al Capone, and you were you were like, is that him? And I was saying, no, it isn't. It's definitely not him. Yeah, but he he look he has the exact same yeah. look. It's very strange. I, I I wonder if that was intentional or if they were just like, I guess this is good enough. Because he's not characterized at all. He's no. fodder. Mm. But he, yeah. Anyway, it doesn't, it's not important. No. You know, he looks a lot like Capone, but he's not Capone. But uh, he said, this, this, this dead guy serves a purpose. Yeah. In the next scene. Yeah. That guy gets shot by Ness, I think. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Ness. Probably Ness. And they leave his corpse on the porch of this weird cabin, cabin on the, the border. Uh, and they capture one of Capone's guys, the one who would have to sign in the ledger for the shipment, who's wearing a bizarre coat. So they've got him. They're trying to get him to talk. He doesn't want to talk. He's like, you, you have nothing. You're never going to get me to talk, copper. And uh, Malone says, <laughs> watch this. And he goes out. He picks up the corpse from the porch, props it up against the, the window where everybody can see him. So the but the the corpse has is back to yes. the to the window. So yeah. the other so the the ledger guy doesn't know he's dead. Yeah, and he says, uh, "You're going to tell me what I want to know, or I'm going to blow your fucking head off." One, two, bam! Cue the ledger guy to piss himself right. and start crying, and say, oh, "I'll tell you whatever you want." Yeah, suddenly very cooperative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess he helps them because they get some new leads, right? What do they do next? They go back to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they've got the ledger. Mm-hmm. So they're like, if we can show that these coded entries are actually Al Capone, then we can get them on tax evasion. Yeah. So that's their, their gambit going yeah. forward. Rather than, you know, the murder... The prohibition breaking anything else it's tax evasion 
which is okay. Like, I guess I know that's how it actually worked, <clears throat> but yeah. like, it's a movie, and you're making your heroes say, "We may not be able to get them on racketeering or murder or anything, but we can get them on a technicality of not paying his taxes," which is kind of. It's not super climactic. No. No. No, it's not. No. It also... It kind of justifies the accountant being part of the dream team. Yeah. Because he's the one that spots it. Yeah. Um, but I, know, I guess... I guess that's... That was kind of... I mean, they could have spliced it up for the film. Mm-hmm. And find something they could get him on yeah or even just made like the tax thing be like <clears throat> more interesting because <laughs> they just sort of <laughs> present it as like tax evasion they don't sort of present it as you know we know about all this stuff but we can't prove it god damn it we have to abide by the law so we have to do the taxes it's just well we got the taxes so at what point so the next scene is the is this when they're in this is when um, they have the ledger guy. Yep. Um, this is the elevator. This is the elevator. Yeah. So this is in the this is in the police station, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. They're in the station. <clears throat> um, they're trying to protect this witness, mm-hmm. the ledger guy from Capone's dealings. He's very nervous, isn't he? He's he very knows. nervous. He's saying, like, "Be careful, watching." Yeah. He, uh, he knows that Capone is going to send somebody to clean this up. So they're, you know, they're going down in an elevator. We see where, the scene where he goes in the elevator with the accountant. Yes. To go down in the service elevator. And the elevator, they're behind the elevator guy. And you see the elevator guy is the door shut. And it's the man, the in, the man white in the white suit. suit. Not wearing a white suit. He's no. wearing the elevator guy's uniform. Yeah. Just so the audience knows that something is going to happen, right? Um, and then this is and Nat and Malone are just kind of chatting in the in the corridor, and yeah. then and then you see the elevator is going down, and then the ledger guy says to the accountant, "Just just be careful, watch yourselves." And then the man in the white suit turns around, shoots the ledger guy in the in in the head, or in the whatever, head, yeah, and then he turns on. The accountant. Yep. And then, but you don't see, and then the next scene is... Yeah. Elevator Malone, doors open. Malone, no, Malone and Malone and Ness in the corridor hearing another shot. Yeah. Then they, that's the shot they react to, not the first, not the first <laughs> shot. Not the first yeah. shot. Yeah, you're right. It took two shots for them to yeah. react. Oh, damn. Yeah, so they run down the stairs... They're trying to catch up with the elevator. They get to the bottom. They pull the doors open and they see their star witness is dead and also their friend, the accountant. And uh, the man in the white suit who scrawled something on the wall in blood. What does it say? It says... Touched. Doesn't it? Or untouched? It says touchable. Touchable, that's it. (laughs) Touched. <laughs> yeah. Touchable, yeah. Touchable. But actually but and before then you see you see the crooked police chief looking out the window yep. and seeing the actual 
as the actual elevator guy, mm-hmm. dead. Dead in an in alley all, behind. In a pool of blood. Yeah. And he crosses himself, but he's, he, know, he's, yeah. Yeah, he knows what's going on. Right. So the chief is in on it, obviously. Yeah. I think it was at this point, watching it, that I was like, this is like a comedy that somebody turned into a drama by changing the score. Well, like, going back to the, 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 the scene on the bridge, you said it was like, it's like a comedy. It's like a comedy. Yeah. Except the music makes it... Is there anything that signifies it's not supposed to be yeah. a comedy? Yeah. The, the, the music by Ennio Morricone, by the way, which is I, 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 I like. I like yeah, I mean, I didn't have a problem with the music per se. Yeah. I had a problem with the way the movie used the music. Yeah. Yeah. Accountant's dead, witness is dead. Mm-hmm. So like, oh shit, They're now what? happy, they're upset. Yeah. They're upset. The uh, the DA says he's not going to push the case because they don't have a witness and he doesn't want to make a fool of himself. Um, so they're worried about the case stalling, so they realize we need a new witness. And the only one they can think of in the moment is... The bookkeeper. The bookkeeper. Uh, yeah. Uh... Do they go to the, the train station now? This is... <sighs> no, no, no. They have the confrontation now. Capone and Ness. Yeah, he gay. Yeah. Because Ness is angry that his friend is dead and Capone is like, fucking fight me. This is... He goes to his... He goes to his hotel, doesn't he? I want to talk to Al Capone. Al Capone's not here. Yeah. He fucking is letting him talk to him. <laughs> and then... And then, of course, he has... His entourage comes downstairs with him, so he says, so he goes up to him, is it there with Yep. <clears throat> yeah. There were no guns involved at this point, were there? Uh, no. No, not yet. Basically, they, they try to get into, well, Ness tries to instigate, like, a, a fist fight. It doesn't quite work out, because he's outnumbered, like, six to one. And then he, he he's like... I'm going to be real smart and pull out my gun. And Malone shows up just in time to, like, grab him from behind and be like, don't fucking do it. It's, you stupid, stupid. Let's not do it this way. Yeah. Which is, it's a little bit in, in, it it contradicts his Malone's characterization up to this point. Yeah, Yeah, because he's so far been, like, any method whatsoever to get the job done. And now he's like, no, let's not have a shootout in this hotel. But, you know, he was fine with every other shootout they had. Well, maybe... <clears throat> maybe he realized there were... Because there, there, was, there was more of them. Yeah. Maybe he was thinking, when we can get Al Capone by himself, maybe. Yeah, just like base pragmatism. So then then they go to the station? The, so the, they, they... say Capone tells the bookkeeper... You're getting out of town tonight. And and then Malone goes to talk to the chief of the police. Someone kind of gives it away, don't they? Don't they? He, talk, he, he says, no. Ah. Yeah, we know. We know. Malone goes to the chief of police. Oh, yeah. They have a, they have a, a fisticuff then. Yeah. Yeah, they start out in the precinct. They're talking. And Malone's like, come with me. And so they run outside in the rain to a back alley 
for some reason to have a private conversation. And uh, Malone's like, you're going to tell me what I want to know. And the chief of police is like, the fuck I am. And so Malone proceeds to beat it out of him. The chief holds his own for a little bit, but you know, eventually Malone wins because he has to to move the plot forward. Yeah. Also, he's probably better than yeah, probably taller. Malone knows where the bookkeeper is and knows that he's leaving town tonight. He knows he gets his information, and then he goes home. He goes home for some reason. Do we know why? Um, Was it just I'm tired? Maybe he just wanted a little. Snack or something before he he told Nats. Yeah, but then the yeah. man in white. Yeah, but I was thinking when Nats they kind of show up after the next thing happens. Maybe they were coming over anyway. Maybe that might that would work, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would work. Anyway, so yeah, he's at home, and then the man in white. We see him lighting a cigarette on the street, and. The with, camera, with his matches. Yeah, camera zooms in on his matchbook, and he's got an address written in there. 1634 Racine, I think. Yeah. Uh, which happens to be... Yeah. Where Malone is. Malone's address, yeah. But uh, he doesn't go in. This other guy. He sends this other guy in. Yeah. Man in white just walks down the street, all chill, and this other guy goes in. And then there's this scene where... This other guy was presumably looking through windows, mm-hmm. and it kind of goes on a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. He Attempting to build suspense. Yeah, and it's... I also don't see how it fits with, like, the physicality of the building, because it's an elevated first floor where Malone lives, mm-hmm. and this guy has to, like, climb up onto some, some sort of outcropping to get up to the bathroom window that he looks in, and then he very smoothly moves over to the next room, the dining room, or kitchen, and very smoothly goes back to the living room and the bathroom, and he has no problem. I just, I don't understand how it works. Yeah. Somehow he managed. Yeah, somehow he managed. Uh, he pops open a window. He comes he just inside. Opens it. Just opens the window. Just right. It open. Because people on the first floor don't lock their windows. Obviously. Malone wasn't worried about that. Yeah, especially not a cop in Chicago in the thirties. And considering like what's what he's in the middle of. Exactly, it's it's a bizarre moment. Uh, and this guy, he goes in. He's looking for Malone. And Malone's just kind of, I think he's spinning up a record or something. He's what he looks. He looks for him, and then we're, we're still the camera is still his point of view at this. Yeah, by like this point, and then you see him look for him, and then he looks down. All the way down to the end of the apartment, and Malone's there. He's mm-hmm. back to him, so he goes up to him. Goes up to him, and then last minute, Malone turns around. He's got a gun. Yep, and, and then it cuts to the guy holding a switchblade. <laughs> yeah, he brought a switchblade. <laughs> Why? And uh, he brought, you bring a you bring a knife to a gunfight. Oh, that was that was a pretty good accent. Well, it's not Sean Connery's accent. No, it's, it's not. It's, it's, it's got to bring a knife to a gun fight. Uh, anyway. Yeah. What does he say? He calls him an idiot. Like, he calls him a racist thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, and rather than just shooting him right then and there, as a cop would do, a racist cop would do in the 30s in Chicago when a mob guy is trying to murder him, he instead starts walking towards him and chases him out of his house... 
And as he leaves the back door to sort of make sure that this guy has run down an alleyway or whatever, uh, we see the man in white. Uh, from he's kind of stood on on, on the opposite side. Yeah, he's or... on like a, a fire escape yeah. landing outside another building, and uh, he's got a gun and he shoots him. Yep, he. Uh, oh, it's a machine gun, isn't it? Yeah, it's a Tommy gun, and he fucks him up. He but, is eighty percent hamburger after this. But he's but surprisingly he's still alive. Yeah, somehow still a, alive. For quite a while. Yeah, that makes no. No goddamn sense. I mean... Because <laughs> everybody well, else in this movie has died from one or two bullets. Or a baseball bat. Okay. But, but, but I didn't say this to you while we were watching it. Mm-hmm. When you were saying all this. But I was thinking, okay. Obviously he had to stay alive to give Ness that evidence. Yeah. That's why he didn't die. He he was... He was... He was... He's essential. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't die. In fact, he can still move. He drags his bloody ass through three rooms of his house to the living room, the front living room. Because that's where the evidence is. Yep. And then he, he's on the rug. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and then we see... So Nas and the other guy turn up. Uh Is there, is, are there other people there at this time? There's, there's people... Yeah. This is, this is yeah, just, there's people outside. They're like... not long after ah. it happened. Yeah. yeah. And they come in. And he comes in. And Nas comes into the apartment. And he sees blood on the floor. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, that doesn't... Like a trail of blood. And he, that, for some reason, that doesn't trigger... Oh, my God. He doesn't hurry to find him. He just kind of slowly follows the trail with the same... Yeah. Kind of unemotional state... And then when he sees Malone all bloodied up, he's going, oh my God. Is Malone, that... are you all right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what did you think he was going to look like? You saw all the blood, right? right? You saw the trail of blood. Yeah. Did you think he was going to not be covered in blood? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the reason they did it slowly was to build suspense. Uh-huh. But you can't build suspense if your actor can't act. And Kevin Costner can't act. Or at least he doesn't in this movie. He says the lines, he makes some faces, but he, he's, he doesn't emote in any way. Wow. Like, if he was slowly following the trail of blood while looking, you know, horrified, gaunt, just, you know, yeah. on the verge of tears, that might have worked. That might have built suspense in collaboration with a musical sting. But the way it was presented, I don't think worked at all. But how did you find the actual death scene? The, stupid. The, between <laughs> Fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, he finds Sean Connery. He's on the carpet, bloody as shit. And uh, <laughs> what does he do? He he, t- he, he said something to him. Like, yeah. He's, he's, Malone's still alive for the he's, moment. He's, he's, I, I thought Sean Connery was very good at this when mm-hmm. he was talking when he was, his mouth is obviously full of blood and he can hear it in his mouth yeah. and uh, he tries to tell him about the evidence and he says he reaches over and says and you can see there's this um, what is it like a, a religious a, insignia yeah, yeah. artifacts yeah. on a saint, chain saint somebody patron and saint and you think he's going for that so Nas gives that gives it to him 
then he puts his arm out again and you realise he's trying to get the paper the bit yeah. of paper that's just just f- further along from it so yeah I think it's like a train schedule and he's grabs it and it's covered in fucking blood at the yeah <laughs> real gross so you don't want to ruin it yeah you're supposed to give it it's essential evidence yeah and then you kind of realise that's what he's doing and then and then then, then he pops it that's it yeah and Sean Connery got an Oscar there you go yeah I mean in all fairness, I don't have any problems with Sean Connery's performance in this, other than his accent. Yeah. We, yeah. I think he's overall quite good yeah. in this. He no, sort I of agree. fits I the agree. role. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll come back to okay. who's good and who's bad, because there's, there's a lot to say. Um, yeah, so it's uh, a train schedule, and he's circled the train that the bookkeeper is taking out of town tonight. So Ness and Stone go to the train station to try yes. and catch him. And this is a this scene feels like it goes on forever. Oh, it does. It was fully it another two-hour movie. It feels like. Yeah, it's a it's a bizarre scene too, in terms of the way it's, it's shot. Another, another let's create off for suspense. Yeah, I mean the way it's shot is strange. The music is strange. Who is in it and where they are is strange. It's, I it's like, it feels like it should be busier for some reason. It's in a well, it's yeah. a, it's a big, it's like Chicago's main train station. Isn't it? Yeah. So, and, and this was a time when people in the U.S. used trains. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Ness is at the front of the station, and Stone is at the back of the station. Guns out, ready to shoot somebody. Uh, there are still people passing through the station. Not many. Not many. There's a few Marines. Yeah, Navy people. Yeah. In their outfits, cute little outfits. And uh, uh, a strange woman with a child. Yeah, a woman with a child who's like, who's creating a hot, like this great big um, meal of t- taking her. Carrying luggage and taking her child up the stairs. And, yeah. And because no, there's hardly anyone there, no one's helping her. But then you see people get off the train or arrive and then just pass her by on the yeah. stairs. And Somebody even steps over her luggage yeah, on the stairs to get by her, which is, you yeah. know. See, I, thought, I was thinking, why don't you just put, put the fucking cases in the. In, like, put, put them in with the child. Or, yeah. Or, or, like, get. Or just leave or them just, at the bottom, get the child up the stairs, put the brake on. Run back down, grab the suitcases, go back up. Like a sane person. There was a quick, like, there was a quicker way of doing that yes. than she was trying to do it. I mean, and then she gets into a, get, she finds herself in a situation. Right. So Ness is at the front and he's watching this poor woman struggle. He's got his gun as well. You can see yeah. <laughs> with his gun in full view. Yeah, like a full-on shotgun in so a trench coat. I mean, he's, he's looking at these few people going by and thinking, where's this... This this bookkeeper guy, and then he sees this woman, and he's she's there for ages. So he decides to go and help her. Yeah, but she's halfway up the stairs. By the way, like this is like I can't stand this anymore. Not like let me help you. Uh, it's yeah, it's recording. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, but he does hide his gun under his coat. Yes, he does hide his point. gun in his trench coat. I have to mention the music here because I fully had to cover my ears because I couldn't handle it. Not only is there the regular musical score, like in like 
orchestral stings and whatever. There's this incessant, like, ice cream truck sound playing because they want to remind you there's a baby in the scene, I guess. I, I genuinely don't know why it's there. It's not diegetic. It's not included in any of the sources in the movie. It's fully something added to the soundtrack. Yeah, it's all, I've got the soundtrack. It's on, it's, that piece of music has got that on it. Why? I've not... I, I don't know. I'd like to... It'd be interesting to try and find some interviews with Ennio Morricone for, to him for talking about why he did that. Yeah. Is he still alive? He is still alive. We can add him on Twitter. He's about 90 years old. Hmm. It's a bizarre choice, yeah. and I, I could not stand it. I physically went like this and covered my ears because I couldn't handle it. I hated it. Anyway, yeah, it anyway, helps. When he's helping this woman drag her kid up the stairs, yep. the top of the steps, he notices the bookkeeper and some other guys coming out. Yep. So, uh... Yeah, he notices the bookkeeper in the, his entourage. Yeah. And uh, he becomes totally transfixed by them and totally loses his focus on what he's doing, helping this woman drag her kid up the stairs. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he lets go of, <laughs> of the baby. baby. This is like when he's, when he's right at the top of the steps. And all he's got to do is just drag it up one more step. Just get it out of the way. Just get it done. And then he had time for that, but... His focus wasn't there. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't there. So uh, he lets go of the baby. He lets go of the baby. Baby proceeds to roll down the stairs in the carriage. Looking ha- very happy yeah. for this to be happening. Absolutely gleeful. Meanwhile, Ness and Stone are murdering everybody. All except, these guys. Except the bookkeeper. Except for the bookkeeper. Uh, there's a big firefight, and it's all in slow motion, and it lasts as long as it takes for that baby to roll down the stairs. And during that time, Stone has run all the way from the back of the station to the front, and he slides and... Slides across the floor. Just as the baby is going to tip over and fall on the last step, he catches. He puts his, was it, did he put his leg out to stop it? Yeah, something? something like that. Catches the baby. Baby's fine. And so, yeah, the, I think the mother takes it off and gets out of the way like she, like she should have done. Really. Yeah. Um, and, and, while, and while he's there, uh, everyone else is dead, except for the bookkeeper and this other guy he's with, part of his entourage. This guy's got a gun to the bookkeeper's throat, mm-hmm. saying, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill yep. him. And it's aimed in such a way that will blow off his own shoulder if he pulls the trigger. Yeah. And Stone says, I've got him. You see, yeah, you see Stone lying there, aiming his gun with one eye shut. Very think, has he Has he got it? Has he got it? And then you realise, oh, yeah. He's like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, oh, yeah, he's one of the two best shots in that, in those, um, in the, in the, what are they called? Cadets. Cadets, not firing squad, I was going to say. <laughs> the two best shots and the cadets of course he's got him we totally believe he's got him yep. and then it comes as no surprise when he shoots him yep. he gets him. him he gets him so now they've got the bookkeeper mm-hmm. they've got a new witness they can proceed with the court case cut to the next scene which is 
The court. Yep. The courtroom. Capone is on the defense table with all his lawyers. Uh, very cocky, very full of himself. We find out why later. Yeah. Um, and uh, the bookkeeper is on the stand and he says, yes, these coded entries in the ledger correspond to Al Capone. Yay, that's what they wanted. Yeah. He's gotten over <clears throat> $1.3 million in the last three years, which, you know, that was a lot of money then. It was a lot of money in 1920, well, in 1930, the year after the Wall Street crash. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I'd be happy to have that now. Yeah, we'd all be happy to have it, but, like, we couldn't retire. Well, no. I mean, but you could have more fun. Yeah. You could work. You could buy a house. You could. See, that's, see I'd be happy with that. Yeah. That's what I need right now is my own house. Maybe we should get into smuggling. Maybe. We'll think about it. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> see how Capone does. We'll see, well, we'll, yeah. We'll see it won't know how, how our... Uh, um, our career is um, doing this. Yeah. And then Ness notices something. He does notice something. He notices um, uh, Capone's buddy, the man in the white suit, he's talking to him in the courtroom, and he notices the man in the white suit has a gun under his jacket. Yep. Not allowed. No, not in in court. So Ness summons over the bailiff and says, and tries to describe to him, like, this man's got a gun under his jacket. Get him out. out. Sort him out. <clears throat> so the bailiff goes over to the man in the white suit. I can't remember the name of the character. The actor's called Billy Drago, but I've forgotten what the character's called. Anyway, uh, he says, will you come outside? I want to talk to you. So he goes out with him uh, and says, you can't, you've got a gun, you're not allowed it. Give it to us. You can't go back in. And then... then the, the man in the white suit produces a note written by the mayor giving him permission to carry a gun. Yeah. And they're kind of stumped. So they say, okay, he can have his gun. But he's not going back in that courtroom. Yeah. There's some sort of inciting incident at this moment. Yeah. I can't remember what it I've is. as well. But the bailiff pulls a gun. He does something and the bailiff gets his gun out. But... The man in the white suit is too quick and shoots the bailiff. The bailiff's down. And then the man in the white suit proceeds not to flee the building, but to run ascend the building by running upstairs. <laughs> the gigantic marble staircase in the middle of the courthouse. And Ness grabs the bailiff's gun and chases after him. And they run all the way up to the roof. There's lots of moments of... Ducking and dodging and shooting and looking, which which is it's 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 kind of a cliche, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. And they wind up on the roof, and the man in the white is sort of lying in wait because he's a bit ahead. And then Ness busts through the door, and immediately has to dodge gunfire, and he rolls right off the roofs the roof. <laughs> You see him roll off the roof, and the, the man in the white suit thinks, has he gone over? Is he, is, he, is he gone? Is he dead? Is he that stupid? <laughs> he, gets, he, he creeps over to the ledge, looks over, and then, of course, there's another ledge underneath. Yeah. A very small, not big enough for like someone to lie on, and there's Ness with his gun, and yep. he shoots. Shoots the hat off the man in the white suit. You shoot him in the head. He shoots this hat off. I mean, maybe that's maybe he was just a bad aim. 
Even, I mean, for the, for the Maybe science. it's about it. It's comedic. Yeah. It, it's yeah. classic slapstick. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, then Ness gets back onto the roof. They He chases after the man in the white suit for a while. Yeah. They wind up on some sort of half-finished looking roof with a, a rope hanging over the There's side. And the man in the white suit decides to climb down the building on yeah. this rope. I wasn't. I maybe I, my attention was drifting, but I wasn't sure why he chose to do that. Yeah, I don't know either. It seemed it was very clear in the shot that the rope didn't reach the ground. Mm. It was sort of halfway down the building. So yeah. So the man in the white suit slowly tries to get, goes down the building and then realizes maybe that's why he doesn't go all the way down because there's not enough rope. Yeah. So he then climbs back up the rope. To find Elliot Ness with a gun pointing at him when he gets to the top. Yeah. And Ness is... He's... he's this is the second this is, climax. This is his, his big... Um, his Emotional big, moment. Yeah. Yeah, Ness is pointing the gun at the man in the white suit hanging on this rope. And Ness is itching to pull the trigger. But he doesn't shoot him because he's... He's good. Yeah, he's, he's good a man. good guy. He's a good cop. Uh, also not a cop. He works for, like, wow. the IRS or whatever. Um, so he lets the man in the white suit climb back up. Doesn't help him. Just waits. Well, and, uh, would he help him? I mean, I don't know. He's not that good. <laughs> not that good. <laughs> uh, he still hates this guy. Yeah. He, uh, and then he, he says, I'm going to arrest you. You're arrested. Etc. So, so uh, does the man in the white suit just give in at this point? But he gets his matches off him to light a cigarette yeah. or a cigar or whatever. And then while he's doing this, he notices on the matches that we've seen before, mm-hmm. the audience have seen before, and it's got Mr. Malone's address on it. Right. With whatever it was received. And he looks at it and goes, my friend lived there. And then he twigs. This is the guy who killed Malone. Yep. And then the guy in the white suit is also aware that he's twigged, and then there's kind of a thing between them, and he says, your friend, you're dead like a pig. He's squid like a pig. Yeah. And this is kind of the tipping point for, for Elliot Ness, isn't it? Yeah. A moment ago, he was, I'm noble, I'm not going to murder you. But now he's like, fuck that, and he shoves him off a roof. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see... <laughs> You a bizarre this shot. Man, a bizarre, this, he falls off the roof, but you see, you see the camera follows him, looking at his face, and he's falling, waving his arms down, yelling. Yeah, but there's no, there's no in his face. There's no in his eyes. There's no terror that he's going to die. Yeah, there's just his eyes are kind of dead. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe he, he's just dead inside. Yeah. that's why. He's just, he's just trying to make it a five p.m. Pick up his check. He wants to go home. He's tired. Well, he's going home now. Yeah. He's dead. He's he gone. lands on a car. Not just on a car, but right. In the cabin. So he can land, land right in the middle of it. He can't land, he can land just next to it or on the bonnet or something. He has to, you know, it just looks better if he lands in the middle. Right. But he's dead. He's dead. Uh, we go back to the courtroom. With Ness. Which, yeah, and which, t- which time uh, Stone has, has become involved yep. and he's found something in 
the man who wants his pocket, mm-hmm. which is... A sheet of paper with all the jurors' names and money written next to it. Which can only mean one thing. The jurors are bought off. Yep. So Ness talks to the judge and he's like, look at this, the jury's been bought off. And the judge says, nah, I won't accept it as evidence. And Ness convinces all the lawyers in the room to leave the judge's chambers and he talks to the judge privately and says, you know, I saw your name in that book. And, uh, you know, we don't see this in real time. We hear about it after the fact. So obviously the judge has done stuff in the past to make him think, oh, okay. Yeah. The implication is that absolutely everybody is involved here. Yeah. Which is maybe an interesting point that the movie is not equipped to make that, you know, is it a crime if everyone is involved? Literally everyone? It, doesn't, it really seems like there's nobody whose hands are clean. But anyway, the judge agrees. Jury's been tampered. Now we need to swap the juries. But she announces in court. So he says to the one of the surviving bailiffs, <laughs> can, you, can you swap this jury with the other jury in the, the other courtroom that have just started session? Thank you. And then... And then uh, Mr. Mr. Capone is like, what the fuck? What the fuck? He says to his lawyer, what are they doing? What are you doing? You can't do this. Yep. And so, uh, so at this point, his lawyer decides to say, oh, actually, we're going to change our plea from not guilty to guilty. Yeah, and it's not really clear from the text of the film whether this is in accordance with Capone's wishes or if it's done as, like, revenge against Capone or if it's just, like, a shrewd legal... I got the impression it was a true legal thing. I see. Because what? Because because Capone's obviously not happy that he's asking him to do this. Yeah. And so, and the lawyer kind of realizes that that's the best thing, maybe. Yeah. But the only the only path, really. Yeah. But yeah, Capone's yeah. not happy. So. And then, uh, yeah, Capone's not happy. All of his men stand up. There's yelling in the court. The bailiffs are trying to calm things down, and Ness goes over to Capone and he shouts at him, "You don't stop! You don't stop fighting until the fight is done, or something." Do you know what I loved about that bit? What was that? The bit of the way Robert De Niro doesn't look at Kevin Costner because he's so <laughs> insignificant. <laughs> he doesn't look at him for ages. Yeah, and he's still with all his men, and like this Kevin Costner shouting at him, but he doesn't. <laughs> And he's like, what? What are you saying? (laughs) Costner has to repeat the line like two or three times. And, you know, fair enough. It's a stupid line. And the characters, you know, this is something Malone has been saying to Costner's character the whole movie as if it's like deeply insightful or something. But it's just just words. It means nothing. It's audience recognition. He's thinking, oh, that's what Malone said. He's saying it now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's what, it's what, it's what, it's, I mean, I mean. I just think if you're going to end your movie with that, with a line, it should be a good line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 I agree. And that's it. Well, and his wife was in the courtroom to give us something else to do, you know. Oh, yeah, she showed she up. She was there, you just see her there. We don't know why. 
No, I guess. Just Bring your wife to, to work day? day? I don't know. She told me anything else, does she? Yeah. Anyway. Ran out of carrots. But there's one more scene, isn't there? There's one more scene. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Back at the precinct. Yeah. Ness is cleaning out his desk, and he opens a drawer, and he finds the, uh, the, the saint metal thing that Malone had. Yeah. And he's got it, he pulls it out, and Stone comes in. And he could, Stone says to Ness, uh, I think he would have wanted you to have it. And Ness says Ness to Stone... Says, he would have wanted a cop to have it. Yeah. And he gives it to him. And you, you kind of get you kind of get the impression again. He doesn't want to do police stuff anymore. Right. <laughs> he doesn't want to do it. Yeah, he's, he's out. Had enough. And so we get two so generations he, of mentorship yeah. here. Malone to Ness and then Ness to Stone. But you also realise that Despite all the crookedness, he doesn't. Nas doesn't want to fix that. Yeah. He just wants. He's done. Yeah. Maybe that's why, because he can't stand dealing with crookedness anymore. Maybe. He wants to do. Maybe he recognizes that actually fixing the police would be a lot of work and not something with a lot of glory attached to it. Which I can understand why. Yeah. Um. And then that's, that's the end, isn't that's it? That's the end. Uh, yeah. So, before you watch this with me... I really love this film. I think it's... I think a lot of me loving films is, a, is comfort viewing. Mm-hmm. Because watching films set a long time ago on a... Like, the, where you get a, the, the, the period... Was very good. The the, the set, the, the all of it, all the costumes, all the the set design, the uh, the way it was filmed, like all the the way the streets were. I, I thought that was very good. Yeah. And also, that's that that to me is a Saturday night film. That's why that's that was why yeah. I always watch it on a Saturday night because it's it's right for a Saturday night. Yeah, it is sort of peppy, and the pace is. Kind of brisk. There are certain scenes that drag on, but the transition from scene to scene is, I think, pretty brisk. So, I, yeah, so like you said, I kind of accept it for what it is. Yeah. And I don't kind of see my eyes going <laughs> <laughs> to other aspects, yeah. sort of deeper aspects mm. that are there. Yeah. So, this is which is now, which is where you come. Yes. So, we watched this and, uh, Pretty quickly, I knew I wasn't going to love it uh, because we sort of start off with that strange scene where he's holding a newspaper like over his shoulder, one-handed, totally flat so that the camera can get the, a shot of the headline. That's what, that's, yeah, that's, that's what screen acting entails, though. It's like when you're acting for the camera, you don't, when you're talking to someone, you kind of have to look at their ear. Yeah. It's that kind of similar thing. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. But I think there was probably a better way to do that shot. I mean, one of the ways I've seen it done in the past is if you want to get the headline, is you don't have a character hold it. You just go continue a shot from characters interacting to a newspaper by itself, Mm -hmm. like on the table. And it sort of implies by the surroundings of the newspaper that it was being read. And I mean, we, from that, we go to Kevin Costner, 
who. Oh yes, the the, the thing, the the, 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 one, the one thing you, that really bothered you about yeah. this film was the, the central problem I had was that Kevin Costner does not emote in the entire movie. He sort of says the line, and he twists his face up a couple of times, but it's not in a. It's not in any correspondence to what's happening in the scene. Uh, there's the scene on the bridge where he's reading the note from his wife in his lunch and he's twisting his face up and he's doing this manually with his hands. Uh, and, you know, it's supposed to sort of read as I'm exhausted and also frustrated and whatever. But, it, yeah, I mean, he just he doesn't have a lot of presence there is emotionally. one scene the scene where he, the first scene where he confronts uh, Capone where he shouts a bit yeah but it's it's um it's not like angry spittle flying shouting it's saying your loud your lines louder almost yeah. you know what I mean yeah he he was the central problem I had with the movie I think if they put a more competent because everybody else in the movie acts relatively well I was reading about this film last night uh, someone else was they wanted to cast Don Johnson hmm. in that role do you know who that is? no <laughs> <laughs> he was massive at the time on TV for being in Miami Vice hmm okay and uh I haven't watched that for a long time, so I've even never seen it. Don Johnson in anything, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, if they put somebody else in Kevin Costner's role, I think I could have forgiven everything else in the movie, but I think his sort of deadpan delivery throughout elevates the artifice of everything else. Okay. Yeah. Uh, like I made this joke a few times while we were watching it but like it must have been horrible to act against him in a lot of these scenes because he he just gives you nothing to work with that's interesting it would be interesting to to hear from an an actor's point of view Mm. you're coming from an audience point of view interesting to talk to actors or someone who's acted with Gavin Costner yeah to see if that's true yeah I mean I kept I also made the comparison to Waterworld that he I think he's actually much better in Waterworld because he is supposed to be emotionless and distant and uninvested but here he he just looks robotic maybe that's why I should watch I've never seen Waterworld you should watch Waterworld but nobody should ever watch Waterworld I remember when it came out and everyone was saying it was going to be a massive flop and it will ruin his career and I thought, well, do I want to see it? Do I want to see it? <laughs> it's going to be ridiculous. I remember seeing it on TV when I was a kid and thinking, holy shit, what is this? This is fucking weird. And I enjoyed it. But at the time, I, I, you know, I didn't quite have the capacity to think of how could it be better. So I also don't know if it's good well maybe I'll keep an eye out for that yeah um I'm trying to think of other, other films with Kevin Costner in 
Well, I, I, see, because I, I don't mind his acting. It's kind of it's uh, it's uh, it's underacting, which it which works. Uh, given the right scenarios, yeah. Maybe that wasn't the right scenario in that film. There was a lot at stake. Yeah, and everybody else, you know, everybody else in the court cast, I think, was sort of rising to the occasion. Mm. And Costner, you will give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he was just trying to give a subtle performance. Mm. But in a scene with people who are really giving their all, it doesn't work. It doesn't, you know, it just doesn't match the energy. It looks robotic. Um, Another thing I really didn't like about the movie was that it liked to set things up and then immediately resolve them rather than coming back to them later. And even that, like, it, it also has a problem... Yeah, so more generally, it has a problem with how it resolves subplots. Sometimes it doesn't set them up adequately. Like his wife is apparently super pregnant throughout and then she gives birth and we sort of never hear about it until the baby's born. Yeah, you kind of notice she's got a bump at one point. A bit of a bump. But there's nothing... That's if you're actually paying attention. Yeah. Um, But that's about it. There's no kind of references. Yeah. And while we were summarising, we kept all, saying, yeah. And all that is for, is to show that Vanessa is a family man. He's a nice guy. He's a good guy. He's yeah. a good cop. Which kind of is supposed to make him look like when he when he acts like a bad... When he doesn't act like a good cop, it's kind of... Yeah. It's, that's, yeah, that's, it's that's, trying to redeem the character yeah. even though he threw a guy off the roof. Yeah. Um... So, I think the movie has problems. Most of them are sort of surrounding Kevin Costner and his performance. Do you still love the movie? I can't say I do. (laughs) Honestly. Did I ruin the movie for you? You possibly have. I might watch it again one day, mm-hmm. and then I'll see. If, if Without me. <laughs> yeah. And you're never going to watch that again. No, I'm never going to watch it again. I mean... Yeah, that's sure fair. other things I could say good, that's good about this. Other than, like, the aesthetics of it. It's more... It's... It's more. It, 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 there was a TV series in the fifties mm-hmm. called The Untouchables. This it's more like that than it is the, the like the reality of what actually happened. That's interesting. Do you think they were sort of adapting the TV series for film? Well, I've never I've never seen the TV series, but oh. this is what I was reading, and I I'm not sure why they would. I'm not sure what the like why this was made when it was it's sort of curious how the ending of the film is not Capone going to jail but rather we finally have a real case against him 
because it sort of implies that the central conflict in the movie is not between Capone and Ness or like Capone's network versus the law, but rather the law versus itself about, you know, the cops who will do anything to get the job done versus the legal infrastructure associated with uh, punishing crime. And it kind of also works with this thing the movie does a few times where it it subcategorizes cops. Like the Mounties are sort of portrayed as useful idiots mm-hmm. who mean well but are totally incompetent. Yeah. And uh, the regular cops in Chicago are corrupt but mostly mostly nothing. And then the real good guys who break the law but do it to serve the law. And it's, I mean, it's a strange construction, but it's maybe an interesting perspective that the movie isn't quite equipped to expand on. Hmm. I, I think I've been celebrating this film as being like a, a, a Hollywood film for grown-ups made in the 80s. But you've got to that as well. But actually it really isn't. It's a lot, it could be a lot more, a lot, there could be a lot more depth and more things that could be explored that weren't. I think if it really wanted to deal with some of the themes that it brings up, intentionally or unintentionally, it would sort of have to become a character drama rather than yeah. a plot thing. Yes. And it's very much plot-oriented yes. now. And if it was a character drama, they'd have to recast. <laughs> <laughs> they would have to recast. They'd have to rewrite as well, right? Because... They couldn't really do a character drama with the wife being his wife and not an actual person. Um, yeah. And whether that's stupid lying as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that was The Untouchables. That was The Untouchables. Which, uh... Don't touch it. <laughs> it's uh, the film that I thought was untouchable, but actually, it's not. Yeah. So you're going to watch it again someday. Possibly. Possibly. Do you know, but some, sometimes, I mean, I rewatched some stuff I've rewatched, but I can see this is really bad. Mm-hmm. I don't need, <laughs> don't need you for that. Like, uh, do you remember in 2015, it was the 30th anniversary, it was the date that Back to the Future 2 was set in. Yeah. So I, th- I jumped on the bandwagon and I rewatched them. Mm-hmm. They're terrible. Yes, they are. There's no kind of, <laughs> the first one, we're talking about another film now. Uh, the first one, right? It looks ironically. It looks like it's so dated. <laughs> it, it's that whole that whole thing of if you if you act this way, if you if you give like if you if you act if you kind of what trying I say? What trying I say? I don't know. If you stand <laughs> up to people, you can you can you can be a better person. You can make more money and have a better home and live like this. Yeah. That's so, that's such an eighties yeah, deal. That's why that's why it looks so fucking dated mm-hmm. and so terrible. And yeah. the second one, there's a scene that was cut. There's a, so there's a scene in the second film where uh, do you know these films very well? Not like, super well. I watched them last year mm-hmm. when they were on Netflix. So, okay, there's a scene where old Biff 
in 2015 learns about the 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 time machine mm-hmm. and how he'd seen it in 1985 and yep. he thought what happened what was that so he figures it out when he hears them talking so he borrows it he takes the almanac that they just put in mm-hmm. the bin and goes back in 19, to 1955 and gives it to himself and he comes back and then there's a scene where he gets out of the car and he injures himself but then it cuts but in the deleted scenes you see he gets out of the car and he injures himself but he's not it's because he it's because he's disappearing ah because you kind of realise that when he goes that when he the, the, the new him the new him from 1985 is such a cunt that his wife has probably killed him or something <laughs> Which is why he disappears in the future. Yeah. And that, they cut that because they thought no one's going to get that. But if you, but it's the sort of thing that you could work out if you were intelligent enough, Mm. that they could have left that in and added some depth, a bit more actual depth to the story. Yeah. And other stuff like that they could have done, but they didn't. It was because it's a kid's film. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, um, thankfully, I managed to figure that out for myself <laughs> without you. But, the, but there's another really good film I've seen called Night Moves. It's a seventies noir, and the it's it's about a private investigator who gets hired by um, a, a middle aged actress. I think it's set in L.A. or San Francisco or somewhere. This middle aged actress who's he's had a film career or done stuff. And her daughter's gone missing. Mm-hmm. So she hires him to find her. So it goes from being a missing person's case, this guy trying to find, find his daughter. But then he kind of, the thing is, he stumbles on a lot. What he, find, he finds her, but then he finds out a lot other other sinister stuff going on. Yeah. But you kind of, nothing's ever really explained to the audience. You kind of see it through the eyes of this guy this private detective who never really figures out what's going on mm-hmm. and that makes it so much more interesting than to have everything explained and you can kind of decide for yourself what's going on mm-hmm. I find that so much more interesting yeah. and a lot more satisfying than just having like everything spelled out for you or right. resolved at the end yeah it sort of forces you to engage with the movie yeah. Or characters where you're never sure who's good and who's bad. No one's painted as being one or the other. Yeah. Like I watched The Graduate the other day. Have you seen that? No. It's about a college graduate. It's made in the 60s. Who's like, I guess he's 20. No, he's 20 in the film. And he comes, uh, he finishes college and then he's with, he lives with his parents uh, and he's at a party one night, and his one of the, his parents' friends is there. Mm-hmm. This is Robinson. She's like forty years old, and she asks him to drive her home because she's one night because she, she's she needs she wants a company. Yeah, and then so he does that, and then she, she takes him back to her house, and the husband's not there, and then she's asking all these questions, and being very kind of not needy but very it was obvious she wants something yeah. and she's, she's not going to let him go and she says 
He's saying, oh, I need to go now. And she goes, Benjamin, will you stop being silly and just stay or do this for me or whatever? And then there's a famous line where he goes, Mrs. Robinson, you think you're trying to seduce me. And then she laughs. And then she says, no, I'm not actually, but I'm very, I'm very kind of flattered. And then he gets more embarrassed. And then you kind of realise that maybe he was right. Yeah. He was right. And then... And there's a scene where she goes, he goes upstairs and she goes, will you wait while I just get changed in the room? And then he's in the room. And then she comes in and she's naked and she stands there in front of the door. She goes, and he goes, oh my God, oh my God. Uh, there's another famous line before that where she goes, would you like me to seduce you? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Hmm. And you kind of realise what's going on. And then, and then, uh, well... He, she's naked in the room with him her husband comes back and she goes um, and, and then he, he kind of takes control of this, shoves her out of the way and goes downstairs and sits on the couch and he comes in and, and he goes oh hi Ben what are you doing here oh, I, I just drove Mrs Robinson home I, it's, it's fine she needed someone and then she comes downstairs really coolly and just carries on like nothing's happened yep. and, and then later in the film you kind of get there's a scene where, uh, so, but she's, <laughs> no, she says to him, she says, um, they end up having an affair. Because mm-hmm. she, she was saying, I got married when I was really young. And I had a daughter. I th- think it's the reason she got married is because she got pregnant. And so that's how she ended up with this life where she's, Married to this man, they've got a daughter, but she's not happy. She kind of feels unfulfilled, and she just sees this, this chance to have this thing with this younger guy that she never got to have at the time mm-hmm. when she was young. And you kind of, it's never, you kind of think, oh, Benjamin's the good guy, and Mrs. Robertson's bad for leading him astray, and then, but then you kind of, it kind of you kind of get a bit whether you're not sure yeah. about Benjamin. Is, is is he the good guy? Because he's now having this affair. He doesn't have to. Right. And then there's a scene where they're in a motel room talking about her daughter. Because her, da- her daughter's his age. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's saying that his parents have been saying, oh, you should take Elaine Robinson out. You should go out with her. And Mrs. Robinson's like, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Please don't do that. And he says, okay, I won't do that. I won't do that. I won't ever do that. And then there's a scene later on where Mrs. Robbins, where his parents are saying to him, you should take Elaine out. And they kind of, I don't know what happens, there's some kind of unintentional emotional blackmail. Mm. And he ends up taking Elaine out. Okay. And then you kind of think, you, you never it kind of blurs the lines between who's good and who's bad yeah. and then you should watch that it's good it's really good yeah. I think you like I, I think <laughs> I think you, you think like so that. should we record an outro oh yeah we're still recording aren't yeah we? <laughs> <laughs> um, um so yeah that was the untouchables yeah. you're Chris I'm Chris you're Chris. I'm Chris. Do you have any ideas what we should watch next?
Um, so I said that I was going to make you watch Logan from 2017. And I said I, I didn't say anything. I didn't say I would or I wouldn't. You said hell no or something to that effect. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's an X-Men movie and I know you don't want to watch it. But it's a good movie. How long is it? I don't know. Probably two hours. It's not short. Mm-hmm. I'm very... I, I can't take your word for it that it's good. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm clearly neither of us can trust the other. 